Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. Back in 2019, this man, uh, Kanye West, made a, uh, made a very high-profile change in his life. He professed faith in Jesus. Somebody asked me earlier why, why Yeezy was on the, on, on the screen, and I didn't know who Yeezy was because, you know, I'm just not in, in with the, the lingo and everything. And so I guess Yeezy met Jesus. And so, uh, so that, that happened in 2019. He released an album right afterwards, and it's always convenient when you have an album ready to go to uh, follow a conversion. Uh, and, the, and the album was titled Jesus is King. And I'd like for us to all sing one of the more popular songs on the album. Um, and so, so the lyrics go like this. Uh, I know you know it by heart. Closed on Sunday, you're my Chick-fil-A. Closed on Sunday, you're my Chick-fil-A. Hold the selfies. Put the gram away. That's Instagram for all you non-cool people. Um, Get your family. Y'all hold hands and pray. When you got daughters, always keep them safe. Watch out for vipers. Don't let them indoctrinate. This could be a Dr. Seuss uh, poem. (laughs) Closed on Sunday, you're my Chick-fil-A. You're my number one with lemonade. Raise our sons. Train them in the faith. Through temptations, make sure they're wide awake. Follow Jesus, listen and obey. No more living for the culture, we nobody's slave. So you guys know it, so if I can get the band to come back up and accompany it, we'll sing it together, okay? I don't know that's going to play well at Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. I don't know that, I don't know that, that may be just a little bit above our reach as a, as a music ministry, although it may make it in the Christmas program if you get enough of a choir. <laughs> After Kanye's public conversion, he told his pastor, from now on, all I want to do is serve Christ. I want every song that I sang to have part of my testimony, to include the gospel, to include the element of worship to our great God. And that's what I want to do. We hear that, and that sounds like a, a very uh, respectable testimony uh, that, that a Christian would want to give. And, and I can say that, uh, not because I've listened, but because of just, just looking into it, that, that since 2019, his albums haven't had profanity in them uh, in terms of four-letter words. I won't say that the lyrics have always been Christ-honoring, but he at least did cut out the profanity. Immediately after his conversion, he started doing nationwide pop-ups worship services, thousands of people in attendance in these Sunday services, as Kanye called them. He appeared on television to promote his newfound faith. I saw a, 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 a recording of a late-night um, interview that he did with James Corden on an airplane with his choir. I mean, it was, uh, uh, and in the interview, uh, generally speaking, for a new believer, he, he pointed people in the direction of, of Jesus. Um, I think as we heard this, though, as, as Christians heard this, we, we were very cautiously optimistic about this high-profile conversion to faith. At the same time we understand that we're optimistic, we do have to acknowledge that there's a reason Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6, that a pastor must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. If you've not noticed, in our culture of celebrity, Christians tend to make a very, a very big deal about high-profile converts. 
somebody with a big following, somebody with a, with a, a big audience comes to faith in Jesus, and, and man, it, may, it makes the news. We write stories about them. They're told, their stories told in Christianity Today and, and other religious publications. Um, we behave as if we believe their life apart from Christ adequately prepares them to be de facto leaders and spokespersons for the Christian faith. And I think it's wise for us to recognize that Kanye West has no business being a spokesperson for the Christian faith, having, if he was saved in 2019, having just recently put his faith and trust in Christ. He's got no business being our, our spokesperson. He's not ready to be our spokesperson anymore that somebody that was saved in 2019 has no business being the pastor. It's just not time yet. It's not, not ready yet. It takes, it takes a little bit of time. But you notice we only do that with celebrities. If some fellow down at the factory got saved this week, we're not going to bring him up front to preach a sermon. We're not going to let him teach a Sunday school class. I mean, if he just met Jesus, we're not going to put him in a position of authority, a position of, of, of responsibility like that. We certainly let him share his testimony, let him talk about how he met Jesus, but we're not going to hand the scriptures to that new convert and say, here's the Bible, here's the church, go and divide the word of truth. We just don't operate that way. Um, well, if the regular guy doesn't do that, then celebrities shouldn't get that privilege either. As we, of course, look at Kanye's life since professing faith in Jesus, we understand that it's been a, a little bit of a bumpy road after his failed presidential bid. Uh, if you weren't aware, he's currently in the midst of a very high-profile divorce from his wife, Kim Kardashian, uh, which pretty much any time you use the words Kanye West and Kim Kardashian, it's, it's hard to imagine that that has any... Uh, it, it's hard to see that that has redemptive characteristics right now, and we certainly pray that uh, that they will they will truly come to um, come to grow in their faith if there is faith there. Uh, but certainly, they're in no position to be in any voice of authority in the Christian church. So, what will happen to Kanye's Christian convictions? Time will tell. We don't know. In the meantime, we pray that he'll actually take time to to settle his heart and mind to focus on Christ, and hopefully his faith will stand the test of time, and he will not be like the seed that Jesus warned about that was sowed among thorns, that looked like it was going to bear fruit, but then was choked out by the cares of the world. Last week, we talked about, I guess we could say safely that it is the most high-profile conversion to Christianity that we've encountered in the scriptures to this point. Uh, we talked about Saul, who met Jesus, of course, on that Damascus Road experience. And we, of course, we've talked about the Ethiopian eunuch, and we know that he was a high-profile individual, uh, but very different than Saul of Tarsus. The Ethiopian eunuch was in a position of, a, of power and authority, but no one really knew him except his friends in Ethiopia. Nobody really knew who that man was. Saul of Tarsus was a different story. He was infamous. He was a murderer, a villain, if there ever was one, until the day that he met Jesus. However, when Saul came to faith in Jesus, he didn't set out on a Mediterranean tour, performing hits from his latest album. He wasn't immediately put into a position of being the spokesperson for the Christian faith. His pathway into the, the, the prominence of Christianity did not take him to the heights of tabloid fame. Instead, when Saul of Tarsus became a follower of Jesus, he actually became public enemy number one. 
If you got your Bibles, we are in Acts chapter 9 today, and we will pick up where we ended last week in Acts chapter 9, and we'll begin there in verse 19. I would invite you to stand with me as we read these words in Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 19, and we'll start there in the middle of the verse. For some days, Saul was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He's the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And and has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. They were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas, son of encouragement, Barnabas took him, brought him to the apostles, and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea in Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Father, I want to thank you for Saul that will soon become Paul. We thank you, Father, for, his, um, for, for delivering him from, from the pathway that he was on and setting him in a new pathway, one that would really, truly change the world. We pray, God, as we think about the after effects of his conversion, that there would be a challenge for each and every single one of us as well to realize our place in your kingdom. We ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Immediately after Ananias visited Saul, we read that Saul spent time with the disciples there in Damascus. I love that Saul can't help but talk about what he's learned. You see, there's a difference between giving someone authority and silencing someone. And they don't give Saul authority, but they certainly don't silence him. Because he's got a story to tell. He's got a testimony to share. Here was Saul, who was a murderer, a persecutor, a a, a destroyer of the church, who is now a member of the church. He is someone who has a story to tell about how he has met Jesus. And you can't stop Saul from talking about it. Keep in mind, before he comes to this place, before he meets Jesus, that that Saul was already an Old Testament scholar. He was a brilliant Jewish legal mind. And so when you take all that Saul knew and you add Jesus to everything that Saul already knew, I, I can't imagine that having that clarity all of a sudden would have been like drinking from a spiritual fire hydrant. Imagine knowing everything about the Old Testament but not knowing Jesus, and then suddenly having Jesus inform everything you know about the Old Testament. And suddenly everything is clear. Everything makes sense. All those prophecies that that you read about that that pointed to a suffering servant or or pointed to this man that, that was not even recognizable, all those prophecies suddenly come into remarkable clarity. And Saul 
had that had, those scales fell from his eye remember that last week when when Ananias came and prayed those scales almost represent that that hiding that was there where he knew everything but he didn't know who Jesus was and then suddenly knew who Jesus was and all that he knew was made better because Jesus completed all of it and so Saul, I mean, he's got a new story, he's got a new journey, he's got a new life to talk about. So he goes to the synagogue, because that's where his friend, that's where friendly people are. There's the Jews. He goes to the synagogue to tell everybody, everything you know, if you add Jesus to it, it makes it that much better. And that's what Saul's story is here. And he was really good at making the point, we're told. In Acts chapter 9, verse 22, we're told that Saul increased all the more in strength. He confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. He confounded the Jews. And so he's brilliant. He's able to take this knowledge of Jesus. He's able to, to confound people by, by simply pointing them to the truth that he has been exposed to in the person of Jesus. Had that pattern continued, Saul could have easily have become the celebrity spokesperson for the church. Give him a Facebook page, give him a blog to write, make him, put him up front, make him the star of the show, and, and he could easily have been that person. You know what, though? Ministry is not well-suited for celebrity clientele. Ministry is not something that, that happens very easily in the spotlight. You see, in our service to Jesus, we always need to make sure that it is Jesus is the one who gets the credit not those of us who were doing ministry. Saul had a brilliant mind, but that mind it needed to be shaped and molded into a mind that was ready to honor Jesus at every single turn. And so what happens? Well, if you look there in Acts chapter 9, between verses 22 and 23, there's a gap. There's a gap there. And we actually find that Saul goes off of Luke's grid. He, he steps away from the story here because it begins with this phrase in verse 23, when many days had passed. Now, how many days? Well, we don't know, and Luke doesn't know because Luke doesn't inform us of that information. But a season has come and gone. Many days have passed. There's, there's been something that has transpired over the course of, of these many days. And what it actually turns out is that the whole New Testament actually informs us in how to read the New Testament. And so if you don't know what something is here, look around a little bit. You might actually find that the Bible helps us understand the Bible. And that's exactly what happens. So it just so happens that Paul has written a series of letters that make up the rest of the New Testament that if you read the letters in conjunction with the book of Acts, the book of Acts actually comes to life because Paul's letters illuminate some things in the book of Acts. And so what happens here is these many days Paul actually refers to over in Galatians chapter 1. Over in Galatians chapter 1, verse 15, the apostle Paul, writing this, says this, he says, but when he who had set me apart, talking about Jesus, before I was born, who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. And then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that's Peter, and remained with him for 15 days. And so what we see here is that Paul or Saul's preparation for ministry begins, it begins with, with him spending time alone with God. Saul goes to the desert in Arabia during this sojourn that he is making there in Damascus. The symbolism here is rich. Don't miss it. Saul goes to the Arabian wilderness 
which just so happens to be where a little mountain resides that's important to the biblical story. That's where Mount Sinai is. And if you remember Mount Sinai, that's where Moses was given the law. And so Mount Sinai, the Sinai wilderness, becomes a a place of testing, a place of proving, a test of trying, a test of growing. And so Saul goes to the place of Sinai, and it just so happens that it's at Sinai that God gave Moses the law, but it's also here where Saul learns all about grace. He spends time alone with God. I can't help but think of how beneficial it would have been if Kanye got saved in 2019, if he could have spent just a couple of years in a seminary campus somewhere learning how to rightly divide the word of truth rather than setting out on a world tour to sing gospel songs from a hip-hop album. Again, we don't know anything that happened to Saul when he was there in Arabia It is a mysterious time, to say the least. But we have to assume that during this season in Paul's life, it helped him to develop these rich theological concepts that are so important to us as we read through the New Testament. That's where that was birthed out of. And But we can recognize this, and it's so important for us, that effective service to Christ— and this applies to every one of us, not pastors, not just, not just those who teach Sunday school or those who are actively involved in some sort of vocational ministry. Effective service to Christ demands that we take time to be alone with Christ. I don't care who you are. If, if your ministry in the church, in the kingdom, is, is nobody notices. It's not up front. It's, it's quiet. It's private. If nobody pays attention... Effective ministry still demands that we take time to be alone with Jesus. And our world is filled with distractions. Man, how, how distracted are we? I was thinking about this, that, that even as, as I have stood here preaching, I've had two notifications come through on, on my notes here of, of stuff going on. Uh, and, and, I mean, I don't pay attention to it, but there's stuff going on, constantly being distracted, constantly being alerted, constantly being notified about this and about that. There's red bubbles on your phone unless you're one of those weird people that lets thousands of them accumulate. And some of y'all do that, and that drives me crazy. There's a child calling your name. It may not be a red bubble. It may be a child. Have you ever had that time in your life where you think, I really wish my name wasn't Mama, or I really wish my name wasn't Daddy? right? Like, I'm going to change my name uh, today. There's a washing machine that just finished. There's laundry to be folded. There's, there's a Zoom call from work that I need to go connect with. It might do all of us some good if we could find that deserted place for just a little while. If we could find that quiet place, that, that Sinai, so to speak, where we can meet with God where nobody else is talking, where there's nobody else making noise, where there's nothing else begging for our attention. It might do us all some good to find that quiet place. But since most of us can't escape to the desert, then we have to work extra hard to carve out that space. We have to work extra hard to make that margin in our life where where we can create that, that spiritual safe place in our own lives. For me, it's first thing in the morning. I love to get up first thing in the morning before anybody else is awake, before the noise starts, before the, uh, before the internet wakes up, before any of those things happen. I love to make that, that, that time first thing in the morning. Uh, my alarm goes off at 4.30 every morning, and, and that is that time when nobody else, is, nobody else is, is worrying about anything right now. And that's that margin for me. That's that safe space where I can stop and I can listen to Jesus 
over a good cup of coffee. It's those quiet places where the Lord speaks to us, where the Lord develops us, where the Lord grows us. We have to look to the Lord Jesus Christ, and we recognize that even Jesus spent time alone with the Father. Even Jesus had to carve out time. I mean, he lived in a fraternity, right? I mean, it was effectively a mobile frat house. He had these 12 guys that were with him all the time, and even Jesus had to say, guys, I need to step away. I need to leave the crowds. I need to leave the the, the busyness. I need to leave all the voices crying out, and I need to go where it's quiet. If the Son of God, in all of his perfections, has to leave the busyness of his ministry to go connect with the Father, how on God's green earth do we expect we're going to get through if we don't carve out that time? We won't. And we'll find that the longer we go disconnected in that regard, the harder and harder it is to find our way in Christ. So we understand that Saul was prepared by that time of being alone. We also understand that, that Saul was prepared for ministry through a good dose of, of humility. We return Saul back to Damascus. He's been in the desert. He's had that time alone with God. We're in a three-year window, according to Galatians chapter 1. And it's important to notice that when he came back from the desert, he wasn't greeted as a celebrity. It wasn't like, oh, Brother Saul, you're back. We're so glad to see you. Come to the synagogue and give us a devotion today. That's not what happened. He was not greeted as a celebrity Pharisee. Instead, he was seen as a tremendous threat. There were people who were out to kill him. It didn't take very long before everyone saw him as somebody who needed to be eliminated. Again, the irony in this is thick, right? This is the guy who was killing Christians, and now he is wanted to be executed because of his Christian faith. So in order to escape the threat, Saul has to, Saul has to go to a church member's house who just so happens to have a house built in the wall of Damascus, and in order to get out of the city, because the gates are being watched, they fashion a basket. I imagine a laundry basket of some sort. They fashion some sort of basket, they put Saul in it, and he is lowered out the window of a church member's home. Now, if you're eight, that sounds pretty cool, right? I mean, if you're a, if you're a kid, man, you're going to lower me out the window? I'm glad the kids are gone because they'd be wanting to try this when they get home. Churchill once said that nothing is so exhilarating as to be shot at without result. I don't believe Saul looked at this as a heroic departure. I believe this was humiliating. Here was a man, he had letters from the chief priest to go to Damascus and and drag Christians kicking and screaming out of Damascus. He was someone who had authority. When he walked into a place, everybody listened because this was Saul of Tarsus. And instead, under the cover of secrecy, he's being lowered out of a window in the, in the wall of the city, having to run for his life. This is good for Saul. It's also good for us. Because when stuff doesn't come easily to us, we find it's much easier to seek the Lord, don't we? 
When things aren't happening like we want it to, when the, when the plan's not working out like we thought it should, it, it's a whole lot easier for us to seek the Lord. You see, if we're rocking and rolling under our own charisma, our own plans, our own expertise, eventually what starts to happen is we start to take credit for whatever success we may have. Well, that was my idea. That was my plan. That was my goal. That was my objective. That was, that was my charisma that got us there. And, and I want to pat myself on the back because I accomplished this. I was successful. But you see, these humiliating events like Saul had to experience here, it helps to shape his understanding of his role in the grand scheme of God's kingdom, which is not to make much about Saul, but to make much about Jesus. And for every single one of us, regardless of what our gifts, talents, abilities, whatever those may be, it can never be our goal to make sure that we get credit for anything good that happens. We have to be like Saul here and make sure that anything that good, that's good in our lives, that we point to the one who made it possible. Every good and perfect gift, the Bible tells us, comes from God above. And so when there's good in our lives, when there's successes, when, when things are, are, are happening like we want it to, we have to make sure that we don't say, well, I did a good job. But that Christ in me and that Jesus is the one who receives that glory. And so Saul writes this, Paul, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 4. He talks about all the, all the stuff he had. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh... If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And then he goes through his resume. And man, he's got a resume. He's circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law, a Pharisee. He is writing his resume out to make sure that the search committee knows that he is the man. He has all of these check boxes. He's done everything that a Pharisee should do. As to zeal, he says, I was a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, I was, he uses the word blameless. He's saying here, he did everything right. Did everything right. But whatever gain I had, whatever good I had on my resume, Whatever boxes I could check, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in death, and that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. What a, what a shift. In that former life, he had everything he could ask for but in Christ he says all of that that I accumulated all of that that had value to me I counted as loss show me Jesus show me Jesus and it's easy to see how this early ministry that Saul was part of contributed to his complete surrender to Christ. You see, gone are the mighty accomplishments in the flesh. For God's glory was far more important. It doesn't really matter how good of a Pharisee you are if you're being lowered out of a window in a basket. 
doesn't matter how good you were at keeping the law if you have to go out in the cover of darkness. And those lessons that, that Saul is gaining here, those lessons are not learned on stage. They're not learned in the spotlight, but they're learned in a basket hanging by a rope out the walls of Damascus. But not just that, but also through rejection. You see, Saul is prepared for ministry, and he is strengthened by the close community that he has in Christ. Three years preparing in the desert, three years in Damascus, three years he's been gone. Three years before this, he asked the chief priest for letters giving him permission to break up families, to murder Christians, to drag them back to Jerusalem and throw them in prison. That's the last time anybody has heard from Saul. The last time anybody in Jerusalem heard anything about Saul, the great Pharisee, the great leader of the Pharisees, the great persecutor of the church. And after three years, he came home. What happens? Well, the church doesn't say, finally, it's so good to see you said they're skeptical, they're, they're afraid. They don't receive him as a brother because the last time they saw him, he was a murderer, he had blood on his hands. He's met with rejection, he's met with fear, and honestly, I mean, who can blame him? Right? I mean, I mean, let's put ourselves in that predicament. Let's imagine that a wanted terrorist on the FBI wanted list, you know, for, for, for terrorist attacks. What if a, a wanted terrorist that we all knew walked in the back of the church and said, hey guys, we're probably not going to receive him warmly. Like, don't worry, I'm a Christian now. Prove it. Right? You know, what do you got around your chest? You know, what's, what are you hiding there? I mean, prove it. We don't believe you. We think you're here to hurt us. We think you're here to harm us. Prove to us that you are who you say you are. And this is what Saul encounters. And maybe he's a double agent. Maybe he's trying to infiltrate the church so that at some point in time he can turn on them and he can arrest all of them, have them all killed. That might be all of our responses. Here comes Barnabas. Barnabas is such a hero of the faith. Barnabas is such a, a, a remarkable example for us. If you don't have a Barnabas in your life, find you a Barnabas. Take out a want ad in the papers. You need a Barnabas. Barnabas comes along, and in this room full of fear and anxiety and mistrust, Barnabas says, he's for real. He's for real. Barnabas believed that, that no one was beyond saving. Barnabas believed that this, this infamous persecutor of the church was not beyond God's grace. And Barnabas became a champion for Saul. He is the son of encouragement after all. And over in Galatians chapter 1, Saul tells us what he did in Jerusalem. It says he spent two weeks with Cephas, with Peter. How do you imagine that first night went? Hey, Peter, I'd like to come over and hang out for a little while. Uh, we, need, we got some talking to do. We need to have a conversation. We're told, we're, he tells us that he hung out with James, Jesus' brother. 
Saul says, I, I saw your brother on the Damascus Road. He was alive. And Barnabas became a lifelong friend and colleague. And Saul, who was once famous for hunting Christians, <laughs> he started hunting a different prey. He started looking for people who needed to become Christians. And all this was supported by this incredibly loving body. Verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace, was being built up, and walked in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And what happened? It multiplied. God's kingdom spread. The church multiplied. And they made Saul the spokesperson, right? He became the hero of the faith. Every chance he got, he was up talking about what he knew. No. If we understand the timeline of the book of Acts correctly, when you get out of chapter 9, we move into a, a whole new section where we follow Peter for a while. And we believe that from just our rough understanding of the timeline that it's almost 10 years before we hear from Saul again. 10 years. But the foundations for his ministry were in place. Changing the world doesn't happen overnight. And we can safely say that Saul is one of those men who changed the world. And we look at this and we say, yeah, that's great, it's a great story. What's it what's have to do with me? Right? I'm glad Saul got saved. I'm glad he became a follower of Jesus. I'm glad he became an apostle. I'm glad all those things are great. You know, I'm thankful, but what does this really have to do with, with me? Maybe we look at this and say, you know, for a young pastor who's ready to serve his first church, these are good words, but, but I don't plan on following that path. I'm not going to pastor a church or be a youth pastor or anything like that. What does this mean for me? I think there's three points that we all need to take away from this. The first thing that Saul's story reminds us of is that we can do nothing apart from Christ. Serving Christ means submitting totally to him. God gives us natural gifts. He gives us natural talents, but he wants us to deploy those gifts and talents into his service. It's not for our own uh, building up. It's not for our own pride. It's not for our own, our own ego. We have the gifts and abilities that we have because God wants us to put those to work for him. We can't think for a second that those things came from us. Saul had a brilliant background incredibly brilliant. But before any of that brilliance could be put to work, he had to be completely deconstructed. He was in no position to put that to work until he completely had to leave all that other stuff behind. And this is true for all of us. Our whole process about becoming a disciple is about disassembling the old us and rebuilding a new us that confirms to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 4 verse 13 says, I can do all things through Christ, but we have to clear out the old stuff first. We've got to get rid of all that old junk that we carry around, and that's part of what this is about, is, is getting rid of the old so that Christ can use us in his kingdom. The second thing is this. Saul's story here teaches us that none of us are indispensable. If you think you're indispensable, put your hand in a bucket and remove it and see how big of a hole it remains. A bucket of water. It's not going to leave a hole. Saul was not welcomed in the church before he was eventually embraced. He was a head honcho before Jesus, but after Jesus, he had to take a serious back seat. 
Three years in the desert. Ten years of silence. We don't hear from him. He is not in the limelight. He is not center stage. He is in the back. The point is this. Listen, God doesn't need us. If we walk out of here thinking for a second that God needs us, we've miscalculated. God doesn't need us. Every one of us is replaceable. But in spite of the fact that God doesn't need you, he does delight in using you. If we approach the Lord like we're entitled because we have a certain gift that he needs to put to work, we are approaching it wrong. We approach our service to the Lord thankful that he allows us to participate, thankful that he's blessed us with gifts that we can put to work in his kingdom. If we ever get to the point of thinking that we're the only person who can do whatever job that it is we're doing, we might just find that God sidelines us for a season to remind us of that. You see, in this arrangement, it's God who gets credit not us. And then thirdly, and I think we lose sight of this, Saul's story teaches us it takes time to build that life that's useful for God's program. It takes time. And there's two kinds of school that help make that happen. The first is that formal education. It's provided by seminaries and Bible colleges, and that training is generally only available and only taken advantage of by those who are going into vocational ministry. There aren't many people who go to seminary just for the fun of it. Um, it's fun. Maybe you should try it. There's that, there's that school, but there's another school that we all are a part of, and it's that school of hard knocks. And we've all got a scholarship to attend there, right? I mean, I keep praying that whatever lesson it is that COVID is meant to teach us, that we would hurry up and learn it. But we seem to still be struggling with that lesson because this thing just won't go away. But, you know, somewhere we've bought into the idea that this is supposed to be easy. We bought into the idea that, that church and the Christian community and the Christian life is supposed to be a cakewalk. And the reality is, listen, everything we stand for as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ flies in the face of everything that the culture stands for. And we have to recognize that if we are going to stand on principles that are given to us in the Scriptures, if we're going to live lives that are characterized by godliness, we are going to find opposition at every turn. And if you find that your life doesn't really stand in opposition to what the world is selling, it may be that you're not all that different from the world. It's not going to be easy. If we've ever sold easy Christianity, we are moving into a generation where that day and time is gone. It may not be easy, but it's worth it. It's worth every effort. It's worth every trial. It's worth every second. I don't know about you, but I want to build a life, I want to build a family, I want to build a church that God is pleased to use. We're all Saul. We're either Saul who's opposed to Christ actively or passively, 
or we're Saul who's met Jesus. That's the only thing. We call it different terms in different places. It may be sheep or goats. It may be lost or saved, but we're all Saul. We're either Saul pre-Damascus or Saul post-Damascus. But the next question is this. Are we willing to put in the work that it takes to go to the next level? To embrace the alone time that it takes to connect with Jesus? Are we willing to pursue humility as hard as it may be? Are we willing to embrace the body of Christ in spite of all her blemishes? Because if, if we'll do that, then let's not be surprised when God puts us to work. But if we're not willing to do the alone time, if we're not willing to be humble and point others to Jesus, and if we're not willing to embrace the body, the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ, then we're probably going to find ourselves generally useless in the kingdom of God. We know what it takes. Are we willing to put it to work? Would you pray with me, please? God, I thank you for the example of Saul of Tarsus, the man that would become known as Paul. I thank you, Father, that in his, in his preparation, it wasn't easy. It was filled with challenges. It was time alone. It was time of humility and testing. And it was time that was redeemed by the kindness of a brother who was an encouragement. Lord, we, we have to answer the question, do we want our lives to count in the kingdom of God? Do we want our lives to matter in, in what you're doing, in your program, in your plan? And if we do, then there's things that we can do to be more useful to you in your work. And that we would take some intentional effort to carve out those, those margins of silence in our lives. That we would learn those lessons of humility to kill our pride. And that we would celebrate the church. Lord, I think I can say this, that, that we as a culture have come to a place to where the body of Christ is, is just an accessory. That we can trade in and out when we grow tired of it. But God, it is this body where we grow. It is this body where we deploy our gifts. It is this body and the thousands and thousands just like it all over the world that are still the best hope that our world has for overcoming the darkness that's so prevalent today. So may we be men and women who embrace your bride. God, again, uh, ask in these next few moments that if there's any that, maybe they're, maybe they're Saul pre-Damascus. They're, they're passively or actively opposed to you, and today they need to follow you and put their trust in Christ. You're calling them. They're, they hear it, but they've rejected it, and today is the day that they need to trust you maybe there's some here today that maybe you're working in their heart leading them into into thinking about full-time ministry and 
They're ready to go, but there's a, there's a time of quiet, a time of seeking, a time of preparing that needs to happen. Lord, would you, would you help us, God, to seek you, to know you, and to hear your voice in this time? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.